Shalom, and welcome to Inside Israel News, your source for unbiased and thorough analysis of Israeli news, politics, and current events in the Middle East. I'm your host, Isaac Kite. Inside Israel News is back. It's been a little while since I was able to record an episode. I have been busy like you would not believe. Uh, It all happens at once, I guess. Uh, Business, uh, industry conferences, everything. So, so much to cover now. I have to dive right in. I'm going to cover the Israeli news first. uh, Then I'm going to dive into, uh, because there's plenty there, (laughs) dive into this wonderful Iran deal and some of the uh, angles about that. Uh, That's going to get a little bit more news coverage out there. And the details of it are horrid as they come out, the little things that have been leaked. So I'll... uh, I'll let you find that for the most part out there in the media, but there are some things that I want my to make sure my audience knows, that you guys know so you're ahead of the curve. Uh, inside information. <clears throat> we'll just say that. Uh, then I'll go into the Ukraine crisis and uh, some perspective about that, as I've been offering in the past few episodes. And I'll wrap up with a quick update of the French election. I, I started in on that. Uh, a while back because it looked like we had some headlines. It looked like something interesting might happen. You know, we're sitting there, you know, poking France with a stick, like, come on, do something, do something, you know, be, you know, your political system, be be interesting. Don't just be boring. And uh, no, no, it's, it's not doing anything interesting, but I'll try to come up with something interesting to say about it for a few minutes. So, Israeli news. Uh, Sad news. First, obviously, uh, several attacks on Israel, terrorist attacks. Uh, Islamic State has claimed responsibility. Islamic State uh, in in Syria is basically dead in in terms of its being, you know, having the power that it had. Uh, Donald Trump and the U.S. military went in there and cleaned them out. And so between the Kurds, the Russians, uh, the Russian back to Syrians, I I should say, the the Syrian government, Assad and, and, you know, the titular government of Syria, uh, backed by Russia and Iran, uh, between uh, those and, and the other groups in the country, basically Islamic State is gone and we're just kind of holding the, um, the rump of the country together and they've kind of worked out a sort of federal agreement between the Kurds and the titular government. The U.S. continues to hold on to the uh, oil fields there and what have you, but anyway... But the Islamic State organization is international, and so it has tendrils that go out everywhere. Uh, in the Palestinian territories, uh, in Samar- Judea and Samaria, uh, what the international press uh, erroneously calls the West Bank, and uh, the Gaza Strip, you have Fatah, mostly over in Judea and Samaria, and Hamas. In the Gaza Strip, uh, these are the two main terror organizations that run, uh, terrorize the the Arabs, who, who they control, this, this group that calls themselves the Palestinians, uh, <clears throat> they, they oppress those groups and the, those people. And then there are other groups. There's uh, uh, you know, Islamic Jihad, Islamic State, uh, some of these others. Well, Islamic State wants to get its name in the news and they want to show that they're still active and doing something. So uh, they had uh, two uh, Arab-Israeli soldiers killed in Hadera, and then they had a, a terrorist sneak through the security fence. Uh, its uh, security fence is, is not entirely complete, uh, unfortunately. It's about 62% complete. It's going to ultimately be over 700 kilometers long. That's about 430 miles. And uh, they haven't finished it. It's, it's 62% complete. But uh, the group of, you know, this, this terrorist basically cut his way through uh, or used an existing hole in the security fence and uh, was able to make his way from Janine to B'nai Brak in about an hour. And uh, once in B'nai Brak, he went around killing people, uh, at least five people dead, including a police officer who was trying to stop him. And this is, this is the horror of the, the ever-present threat of terrorism in Israel. And this is this is the game we play. Uh, they want to keep us from living normal, healthy lives uh, unmolested by the threat of murder. And we just want to be able to live. So this is the situation uh, with the terrorist attacks. It is. I, I, I mean, all I can say is, uh, you know, we 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 give our condolences to those who 
uh, have passed, uh, and uh, you know we hope they have a rest, a good rest in the the in Begun Eden, in the Garden of Eden, Garden of Bliss. Uh, but the um, you know these are these are people that are are lost to us now. Uh, we are not able to; they're not able to live and and prosper. And so, uh, this is the the great sadness of dealing with terrorism in Israel. Turkey's president, uh, Tayyip Erdogan, has called Prime Minister Bennett to condemn the attacks. Uh, Erdogan has been playing nice with Israel quite a bit lately. Uh, he had been more militantly Islamist and anti-Israel of late in the last few years. But as Turkey has tried to become a, a more regional player and a more Islamist um, entity, his political party is a more uh, religious, more Islamic movement. Uh, Turkey has has been kind of anti-Israel in that regard. And then Russia invaded Ukraine. And now Erdogan is increasingly aware that there's a bear at his doorstep. All of the sudden, magic, wouldn't you know it, change of heart, Erdogan wants to be Israel's friend. <laughs> he needs as many friends as he can get right now. Uh, and uh, believe me, <laughs> he is playing nice. So all of a sudden, Erdogan is against terrorism. Uh, he's very pro-Israel. He's very sad about what happened, and uh, he expressed that in his call. So terrorism in Israel, uh, at least uh, I want to say the, the president of Turkey, his, you know, his, he's giving lip service to justice. I don't know if I want to say his heart is in the right place. Um, I will just say he's trying and perhaps leave it there. All right. Um, foreign ministers from Bahrain, Morocco, and Egypt have arrived in the Negev uh, for a summit on Iran, uh, also from uh, UAE, and uh, they're, they're having other meetings, so I'm going to talk about that in just a second. Uh, foreign Minister Yair Lapid is hosting, and uh, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken attended this conference. Uh, Blinken had already met with uh, Prime Minister Bennett and Defense Minister Gantz. Um, Defense Minister Gantz had uh, some, uh, let's just say some, some uh, reality, <laughs> some real, real life, you know, true, some, some speak truth to power uh, conversation there with uh, Anthony Blinken about Iran and the threat that they pose. So that's, that's a really important thing. Uh, Blinken also met with uh, Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas uh, while he was in the area. <clears throat> the summit is about regional security in Iran mostly. Uh, and it's held in uh, Stabokir, a uh, kibbutz where uh, PM Ben-Gurion, uh, the founder of Israel, the founding prime minister, uh, David Ben-Gurion, where he lived. Uh, and late in his life, he really promoted agriculture and um, he, uh, he is just, he's a, he's a father of Israel in so many ways, not just politically, but he really drove Israel in its, uh, agricultural rebirth, its renaissance. So, um, <clears throat> Prime Minister Bennett in his conversation <clears throat> with Anthony Blinken, uh, Secretary of State expressed concerns about the Iranian Republican Guard being delisted as a terrorist group. There's a possibility in the Iran deal that the uh, Republican Guard would no longer be considered a terrorist organization. As we saw with uh, Soleimani, the uh, terror leader from Iran that President Trump had uh, killed in retaliation for uh, attacks against the U.S. and our allies. Iran is the largest state sponsor of terrorism. The, the Republican Guard is literally involved with the Houthi rebels in Yemen, with Hamas, with Hezbollah in Lebanon, with all of these groups. It is a major, major, major terrorist supplier and uh, has engaged in acts of terrorism itself. So we can't let, uh, we cannot afford to let uh, Iran off the hook for being a terror, a state sponsor of terror. And we cannot allow the um, Republican Guard to be removed from terror group, terror lists. It is a terrorist organization, uh, you know, arose by any other name, right? Anyway, uh, Prime Minister Bennett uh, apparently angered the right in a recent speech by using the term West Bank. 
uh, at the summit in his discussions with Anthony Blinken. Maybe he was using this as a shorthand in order to refer to the Secretary of State. Uh, sometimes in diplomatic speak, you know, when you want to get your point across, um, there's this, there's, there's a lot of games about these things, you know, when, uh, when the Israeli uh, liberation of Jerusalem took place, the Knesset moved to a new building in Jerusalem, right? And the Egyptian government would continue to send its diplomatic papers to the, uh, you know, Israeli Knesset in Tel Aviv, right? To, to deny that Jerusalem is the capital. So you get a lot of this diplomatic language. If you, if you study your history, it'll be like, you know, the, uh, you know, Otto, the, the first emperor of the Romans, you know, sends uh, greetings to Alexius, emperor of the Greeks. And Alexius says, you know, Alexius, emperor of the Romans, uh, sends his greetings to Otto, emperor of the Germans. Right. And you, know, you get this back and forth. Like, you know, how do you refer to somebody if you if you call someone, you know, emperor of Rome? Right. What do you you know, what are you establishing for them? This kind of thing. So it's diplomatic speak. But in any case, uh, right wing parties and right wing activists in Israel are ticked and they're not happy with the prime minister for using that term. Opposition leader Bibi Netanyahu, uh, recently ousted from power, said that the Iran deal would be a huge mistake. Quote, a big mistake. Uh, Bibi is uh, pushing that the government should do more to uh, discourage the U.S. from signing the deal. I'll talk more about the deal here in just a minute. And <clears throat> Bibi is uh, continuing to push the idea that this coalition, that the change bloc, is not strong, that it's weak, weak-willed, weak-need, and that it's giving in to uh, the interests of Israel's enemies. I don't see a lot of evidence of that thus far, uh, but with all that's going on now, we'll have to see how this Iran deal thing goes. Uh, that's not a question of the coalition. I mean, obviously, Bibi Netanyahu, when he was in office, went and spoke to Congress in 2015 and still couldn't prevent the Obama administration from signing the unsigned deal with Iran that had no teeth. Anyway, back to that in a moment. Uh, while in town, uh, diplomatic representatives were in uh, Israel. Israel and the United Arab Emirates have signed a free trade agreement, another step in normalization. So not only do they have ambassadors and, and normal relations, not only has have the uh, heads of state and uh, head of government of Israel visited the UAE and Bahrain, representatives of the UAE and Bahrain have now both visited Israel, but the UAE and Israel have signed a free trade agreement, meaning that they may now trade, you know, Citizens of each country may now trade with each other freely uh, with minimum of uh, barriers to trade. You know, obviously you still have to pay taxes, that kind of thing, but uh, customs duties, um, tariffs, these things are all kind of normalized so that trade can be facilitated between these two countries. All right, the Iran deal. Uh, here's the real meat of this episode. So, I'll go through it in uh, the Iran deal and, and some of the things that are happening on it. We, we remember the Iran deal of 2015 uh, that Barack Obama pushed with then Secretary of State John Kerry. And that deal had no teeth. It addressed only Iran's nuclear program. It was a sort of a slowing down more than a freeze. And uh, the the pretense was we were going to allow the Iranians to develop civilian nuclear power, uh, but not nuclear weapons. And so they were, their uranium enrichment and all that would be kept to levels that would not lead to a weapon uh, for them. And so the talk went back and forth on this. Uh, the agreement really had no teeth. Uh, the Iranians could, could avoid inspections to a large extent, and they continue have continued to do so. The IAEA has confirmed this, that... Uh, the Iranians are not cooperating with inspections. Anyway, so that non-deal uh, did not address any of the other issues, right? It was not a comprehensive agreement. It did not address Iranian terrorism against Israel, Iranian terrorism against the government of Yemen, uh, Iranian efforts to undermine the governments of the Arab countries, uh, development of ballistic missiles that should Iran develop a nuclear weapon, they would have the missiles ready to put warheads on to threaten Israel and Europe. They're currently developing uh, missiles. They're, they're very close to uh, missiles that can reach as far as uh, Vienna and Berlin, and they will soon have a missile that can reach as far as London. 
right? So they may not be able to threaten the United States, but they can threaten our allies in the Arab world, they can threaten Israel, and they can threaten our allies in Europe. Great. Wouldn't that be wonderful? All right. On this new deal, negotiations have been ongoing. They've uh, fallen apart a couple of times, and there's been some back and forth about them. Uh, at So some recent news on our end of, of the deal, politics in America. The... We, we, I've talked a little bit about the follow the science turned into follow the political science, right? That uh, the Democrats have looked at the polls for November and realized that they have to back off of the whole COVID restriction thing. It's very unpopular. Well, the Iran deal is as well. And uh, recently, 70 Republicans and 70 Democrats from Congress sent a letter expressing their concerns about this deal uh, to the president and the secretary of state. They are seeking a more comprehensive deal that addresses the larger threats posed by Iran to the region. Uh, But basically, uh, they're saying that they don't think this deal is going to be a good deal. This is going to be good for the United States. Uh, State Department experts have warned that the deal is weaker now than it was before and would not have the same, quote unquote, benefits. Um, one anonymous State Department source has said, we're giving up more than we're getting this time. All right. Uh, there's another angle on this with Russia, and I'm going to go into that in just a second. But um, what I'm hearing from people I know who cannot be named uh, and are not directly involved in negotiations or especially close to it, but, you know, political players in Washington, uh, is that uh, Democrats are worried that uh, an Iran deal is going to hurt them in November. Specific Democrats who are on the ballot, who are in great jeopardy uh, in the House and the Senate, especially the House, but uh, there are at least four, five Democrats in the Senate who could lose their seats. And the way polls are now, if you've seen the latest polls, it's not looking good. I mean, it's it's red tsunami territory. Uh, When you hear Dr. Fauci out there saying, well, we might have to do COVID restrictions again, you know that the polls are that bad, that they're actually considering trying to do another lockdown and more mail-in voting and all this kind of thing uh, out of desperation. They know that that this coming election is going to be a bloodbath, an electoral bloodbath. I'm not calling for violence or for those uh, looking to to get uh, conservative commentators in trouble. Uh, It's going to be an electoral bloodbath. Uh, They're going to go down hard. And one of the greatest areas of weakness for the Democrat Party in polling for decades has been national security. And this is this Iran deal is a prime example. Uh, This is this is giving fodder to Republicans who are running against Democrats to say that they are weak. And while Congress is not necessarily directly engaged in foreign affairs, I mean, obviously, members of Congress are not engaged in negotiations. This is mostly the presidential thing. They can't really avoid blame for it either. Okay, so. The feeling in Washington is that the Democrats are facing a bloodbath uh, and that they are uh, they're, they're going to go down hard and they're going to try and find some way to save face out of all this. Enter Russia. So the Russians, uh, because of all the sanctions we put on them, are now looking to sabotage the Iran deal as a way of harming U.S. interests. Actually, they would be benefiting U.S. interests by sabotaging it, but we'll go into that in a second. Uh, Russia is uh, seeking for its own end, the, the cancellation of this deal. Uh, they're under sanctions themselves now because of the unprovoked invasion of Ukraine, uh, something about mass murder being generally frowned upon by the entire civilized world, uh, has brought Vladimir Putin to uh, his knees. Economically, Russia is in grave trouble. And uh, that has led Putin to see, like, maybe I can kind of push back against this, this deal here and, and hurt the U.S. So that's, that's what he's thinking. If he sabotages the deal, or if it, it is the perception that he sabotaged the deal, or perhaps the Biden administration could let the deal fall apart and blame Putin, right? And go out and they're, oh, it's Putin's fault. I mean, they're, they're blaming him for inflation, gas prices, everything that the administration has exacerbated in the last year that this war has made worse, granted, some of those things. Uh, you know, everything they've done wrong, they're trying to blame on Putin. So they could blame him for this too, uh, with a little bit more, a slightly larger kernel of truth in the lie, right? 
uh, and that might help them save face. So a lot of people in Washington are kind of hoping it falls apart and they can blame Putin and then they can go to their constituents, the far left, and say, hey, we tried to do the Iran deal, but Putin sabotaged it. And then they can go out to more moderate voters and, and middle of the road voters and say, hey, you know, the, uh, you know, we couldn't get a good deal with Iran. We got to be tougher on Iran. And they can go out and say things like that, even if that uh, isn't necessarily uh, honest. So, um, the, the, like I said, the, the feeling in Washington is that the Iran deal is a political nightmare ahead of pit, midterms. Nightmare for the Democrats. Now, for Republicans who are in opposition, the Republican Party has a long history of being against the Iran deal, uh, of opposing it. No Republican supported it in 2015. And it's, it's, you know, the usual national security thing. Republicans can run on, we would strengthen the national security situation. Um, so there's that. There's also a, a growing fear uh, among the diplomatic community that the GOP will abandon the, the Iran deal when they reclaim the White House, which is a likely scenario. Uh, the GOP is in a position now where they oppose the deal. They've made that clear. And uh, if you're looking at the polls for Congress, the polls for the presidential election in 2024 don't look any better for the Democrats. There are polls out now from Rasmussen and other sources that show Donald Trump substantially leading Joe Biden. <clears throat> and that's assuming that President Joe Biden can seek re-election. We already have polls that about 28% of Americans want him to seek re-election. You know, only about one in four Americans, right? Uh, and less than half of his own party. <clears throat> Kamala Harris, who could not poll above the single digits in the Democrat primary. One more time. Could not poll above the single digits among Democrats in the Democrat primary. Uh, she's she's the vice president. So if something happens to uh, President Biden, she's the one who would be taking over. And that would be an even greater political nightmare, even greater political disaster for the Democrats. Uh, looking to 2024, they have no other candidates. They just have to drag Joe Biden across the finish line. And uh, that's not looking good for them. Even Donald Trump is ahead. And uh, we don't know. Donald Trump has made it clear he, at the moment that he seems to be headed in the direction of running. Uh, but he hasn't made any definitive statements on it. He could still back down and put in, say, uh, endorse Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and outflank all of the, the left's media nonsense about Donald Trump, all of their lies, all of the personal attacks. Uh, they'll come up with new ones against Ron DeSantis, no doubt, uh, but he could certainly outrun their, uh, their efforts in that regard. Uh, at the same time, he could take them on head on. And I think a lot of Trump supporters, if I'm reading the, the mood of the country right, uh, would feel that there's certain justice for Donald Trump winning another presidential election uh, that they the the establishment would not be able to uh, twist or, uh, you know, rig, <laughs> if you want to use that terminology. Uh, the White House does maintain with the Iran deal that their goal is to prevent Iran from ever developing a nuclear weapon. It's not really what that, that's what they say. But when you look at some of the meat, some of the, the details, as you'll see in the media, they'll, they'll go over some of these details as they leak out. Even so, uh, what I've told you here, I mean, even State Department officials are saying we're not getting as much as we were giving, you, you know, we're giving away too much and we're not getting what we got last time. So the inside story there already tells you what you need to know. This is worse than 2015. Just don't do it. This is, this is a moment for don't do it. <laughs> but uh, that's what the White House says. They claim that's still their goal to prevent Iran from developing a nuclear weapon. That's not what's in the details. That's not what's in the wording and the language. They're basically conceding that Iran will develop a nuclear weapon and they just want to delay it uh, as long as they can and make it someone else's problem. Right. Uh, even if Biden were to win re-election, right, he'd, he'd be done in 2028. And as of 2029, it's someone else's problem. Right. Not his problem anymore. All right. When I'm back from the break, uh, more on the Ukraine crisis and an update on the French presidential election. All right. More about the Ukraine crisis. Uh, so far, the struggle in Ukraine seems to be something of a quagmire for Russia. Uh, they have uh, managed to invade a thin strip of land along the borders with Ukraine and get close to the larger cities of Kyiv and Kharkiv, uh, Mariupol, and besiege those cities. They're having to pull back a little bit from Kyiv and Kharkiv a little bit. So that is, 
that is a positive sign that shows that Ukrainian resistance has been stronger than expected and uh, it's forced the Russians to rethink their their tactics and their approach. Uh, Mariupol continues to be under siege, even though uh, the the Red Cross is saying they can't get in there to help people and that the Russians aren't meeting their agreements on ceasefires to allow for evacuation. The Russians seem intent on taking all of the Black Sea coast, including the coastal city of Mariupol. So this is going to be this is going to be their approach from here on. There is talk now of some kind of amphibious operation uh, headed toward Odessa. We'll see if that materializes. Uh, but if uh, Putin can walk away with all of the Black Sea coast and significant territories along the Russian border with Ukraine, he can at least save face from the conflict uh, if it doesn't go his way. But uh, the the likelihood that Zelensky is going to resign and that uh, Ukraine is going to become a Russian puppet like Putin wants, as he did in Georgia back in 2008, it just doesn't look like that's going to happen. And uh, if if somehow Ukrainian resistance is able to go on long enough and strong enough that uh, Russia is forced to pull back, that could be called a victory for Ukraine. Already things are more in Ukraine's court than not. And um, that's good, but there's more that could be done. As I, I put out a TikTok video talking about the fighter jets, Poland sent their uh, MiG-29 Fulcrum fighter jets to U.S. base and just said uh, in, in Germany and said, hey, you know, you send them to Ukraine. Now, the U.S. was using the excuse that Poland didn't want to send the fighters to Ukraine. Well, the Poles took the excuse away. Obviously, there's, there's no, well, Poland wants F-16 more F-16 fighters from the U.S., and the U.S. isn't willing to give them. So, the, you know, was this just a maneuver by Poland? Well, uh, of course, Poland wants better fighters. The F-16 is vastly superior than the MiG-29, which is a Soviet-era plane, right? Uh, but uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of politi- you know, political stuff there. But the Biden administration is simply refusing to send these fighters to Ukraine. These fighters would uh, amount to a substantial improvement in Ukraine's air defenses. Then you get the people, oh, that's escalation. That could lead to war. Uh, wow. So, you know, we're sending Javelin missiles, anti-tank missiles to Ukraine that are literally killing Russian tank crews. Uh, what other ex- escalation is, is, you know, that's not an act of war, you know, but what other escalation is necessary for it to become an act of war? I mean, come on, people. The nuclear standoff is an important point to talk about, though. Uh, I used to work in ballistic missiles in, in the nuclear forces. So, you know, strategic missile uh, weapon systems, uh, strategic defense, and uh, the, the sort of the nuclear standoff are somewhat areas of expertise of mine. And so I want to I take a moment to describe the nuclear standoff real quick in this process so that people can better understand it. All right. Imagine a group of guys sitting around a poker table and they're playing cards, right? We're all playing this game back and forth. Uh, Somebody wins this hand, somebody wins that hand. Little bit by little bit, chips move across the table, okay? In the middle of the poker table is a live grenade. Anyone can pull the pin on that grenade at any time. But if they do, everyone dies. No one walks away from the table, right? Now, you may be winning the game and thinking, hey, I'd have no reason to pull that pin. And you may be losing the game and thinking, oh my God, I'm running out of chips. Uh, You're getting desperate. But still, if you pull that pin, you don't win. Nobody wins. The nuclear option is a button Vladimir Putin can only press once. And if he does, Russia loses. There is no scenario where Russia gets some kind of edge or sneak attack on the U.S. where we are not able to retaliate, right? And almost certainly this conflict would draw China in as well, and possibly also North Korea. So, I mean, there's, there's, if, we, if we go there, it's full World War III, right? It's hard to imagine a scenario that goes nuclear that does not expand to full scale. There's not going to be a, you know, the, the, the old Cold War movies like Fail Safe or others. You know, they blow up Moscow. We, we accidentally blow up Moscow, so we let them blow up New York, or we, we send a guy to blow up New York and say, hey, it's a fair trade. No, there's none of this stuff. It'll just escalate to full-scale exchange, nuclear exchange, right away. But again, it's a button that can only be pressed once. When anyone at the poker table pulls that pin, it's all over for everyone. Nobody wins that game. 
So on the one hand, that means the United States and Russia, the United States and China, the United States and North Korea, these nuclear powers, cannot engage, well, we'll leave North Korea out of just a second here, the major powers, China, Russia, the United States. And when I say United States, we'll include Britain and France, because not only are they in NATO, but they also have nuclear weapons of their own. Okay, so none of these countries can engage in direct confrontation with another. U.S. forces cannot open fire on Russian forces and vice versa. U.S. forces cannot open fire on Chinese forces and vice versa. Right? That's what the nuclear standoff means. Okay? We can't go to war. Because the moment our troops start shooting at each other, if it's by accident, we need to stop it. Right? No, 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 you pull back. No, you pull back because that has to stop. If there is any direct confrontation, that's pulling the pin on the grenade. Because, you know, we we have a battle, let's just say, um, just as an example. Suppose, uh, you know, China invades Taiwan. U.S. forces are in the region. Uh, we are committed to defending Taiwan. We defeat Chinese forces in retaliation. Uh, they fire nukes at Guam. We respond by blowing up uh, some part of China. They respond by launching against us. We launch against them. Okay, it escalates very quickly like that. Anytime, you know, or if our forces are defeated and the only way to stop the Chinese invasion of Taiwan is, say, to use tactical nukes, at least on coastal cities, to prevent uh, the Chinese from sending forces to Taiwan. Something like this. The point is, whatever scenario, now it's hard to imagine the U.S. using nuclear forces first. It's not impossible, uh, but we do not have a first strike policy. So we're, we're talking about, for us, a defensive matter. But the reality of battle is, if we win a battle, the other side is going to want to use nukes because they lost. They're going to see that as the next step for defense. You can't count on Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping to be righteous. I want to say um, <laughs> righteous, thoughtful, perspicacious people. Okay, if they lose, if there's a direct confrontation and they lose, they're going to fire. Okay, because that's what that's the last hand they have. It's like if I'm going down, I'm taking you with me, kind of thing. Okay, so that's why our forces cannot engage in direct confrontation. However, we've been through this proxy war thing before, right? We fought a war in Vietnam. The Russians sent vast amounts of equipment, supplies, and military aid to the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese, right? Uh, the Russians invaded Afghanistan, and we sent vast amounts of supplies to Afghanistan. We can send any supplies we want. Now, if we were to send Ukraine F-35 fighters or F-22 fighters, high-tech, cutting-edge technology, that would be a bit much. That would be a provocation. Under such a circumstance, Vladimir Putin might complain and say, hey, you guys are, you guys are going too far. We're heightening our, our nuclear alert status, and that's the last warning, the last straw. We're ready to go, you know, something like that. You know, old MiG-29 fulcrum fighters from Poland that are Soviet era. No, that's not going to do the job. And Putin's already made all kinds of threats and rattled his saber. Uh, and we have no special reason to believe that that would lead to any kind of escalation. But again, if he pulls the pin on that grenade, he's finished. All right. In terms of nuclear forces, you know, in the best case scenario for Russia, if they could get their missiles over here before we could counter launch. Right. That's a big if. Right. According to Hillary Clinton at a presidential debate, the ICBMs, the Minuteman three missiles out in uh, North Dakota, Montana and the corner of Wyoming, Nebraska and Colorado can be fired within four minutes if we if we have an emergency. Right. Well, I have no reason to disagree. Possibly faster might take a little bit longer. Uh, obviously, with those, we, we would wait until we've been attacked we have a nuclear attack confirmed on the United States before we would make such a counter launch, right? Uh, but in any case, uh, this, um, this attack, again, when confirmed, we could, we could launch those. If they managed to get a sneak attack that damaged or destroyed all of those missiles, we still have bombers. If they get all of our bomber bases, well, maybe, but then we still have submarines, our submarines are stealthy. They cannot be tracked. They cannot be uh, destroyed ahead of time or in advance. Um, and they are not uh, detectable, right? If there is a nuclear attack, they will launch 
They will counter-strike, and one submarine is enough to destroy all of Russia, many times over. So I don't want to sound callous like the nuclear threat doesn't exist. It is a serious problem, and uh, as I've written in my articles on Political Vanguard in the past, politicalvanguard.com, home of Inside Israel News, uh, but also uh, generally in, in my own experience that we need a vast reduction of nuclear weapons around the world. It's just, uh, it's asinine to have so many warheads. Uh, the U.S. has had to build up quite an arsenal in order to fend off the Soviet Union, uh, probably more than we ever really needed to, but uh, the arms race kind of took on a life of its own. And the Soviet Union built up a huge number of weapons, and now you know, China's trying to get into the game. And what we really need is a trilateral arms limitation agreement where the three countries sit down and talk about reducing the total level of nuclear arms. Unfortunately, that's not going to happen until Russia and China feel like uh, they're under significant economic pressure or they're in a position of weakness. As long as they feel like they have a position of strength enough to, you know, invade, <laughs> launch an unprovoked invasion of a sovereign democratic state... Um, they're not going to sit down and entertain such a notion. So this is the, the nuclear standoff. And I, I, I don't want to sound too callous about it. Like, oh, it doesn't matter. It is a serious problem. But the fact is, to a certain degree, we can kind of ignore it and kind of put it to one side. Okay, so the U.S. can't go to war with Russia. The U.S. can't go to war with China. China can't go to war with Russia. You know, we can't have these direct wars. The threat of that however, is pretty strong, right? That line of NATO that runs from Estonia down to Romania, that, that line that runs there is a pretty solid one right now. And uh, obviously that, uh, that keeps Putin from pushing too far, okay? But the, uh, the situation remains dangerous, okay? So we can't, we can't engage in, in direct attack, but... There's no, um, no incentive to take it too seriously either, right? I don't want to, um, I don't want to, like I said, I don't want to make it sound too light or, or, you know, trivialize the whole thing. But the fact is Putin can't push the button. Okay. If he presses that button, he's finished, right? Neither can Xi Jinping. That's just a threat they hold and they'll rattle that saber, but they can't actually do it. Okay. Now talking about, you know, I just want to hold putting to one side for a moment. Okay, so a regime like North Korea, their whole strategy is to look like a crazy, uh, deranged regime that could fire at any time because that threat, that uh, willingness to attack, that uh, suicidal, I want to say psychotic threat of attack is valuable to them in that it can, in their mind's eye, um, it forces everyone to play nice with them and it gives them leverage toward negotiations. Before that, there was no reason for anyone to pay attention to North Korea. It's basically been ignored by every administration until President Trump came to office. And then they, they got their nuke and now all of a sudden, hey, everybody's paying attention to them. So they can fire rockets off every now and then just to, to show everybody, hey, we're here, we're, we're a threat, we're dangerous, don't mess with us. That's a different problem. And if Iran joins that club, they are, you know, when they have nuclear weapons, they're going to play the same game. We're dangerous, we might shoot, we might shoot, in order to, uh, you know, to extract concessions from us, from the West, from everyone else, and uh, also to make sure that they themselves cannot come under attack. So let's not take that stuff too seriously, okay? The U.S. can send fighters to Ukraine. We can really help them, really send aid, and they can really push the Russians back. And that's a valuable thing. My fear is that the Biden administration has already written them off, that their assumption is that Ukraine is already lost, basically that it's already been sold down the road, and there's no point in, in trying to defend them. And that's uh, definitely not the case. I think uh, Zelensky and his uh, military have proven that is not the case. The people of Ukraine continue to resist very strongly, and um, they're, they're not giving up, and neither should we. All right. Uh, Israel, in relationship to Ukraine, has continued to play a neutral third party, although for the most part, negotiations have kind of moved over to Turkey, 
apparently Putin feels that Israel is a little too pro-Ukraine. Maybe uh, Israel isn't helping, he doesn't see them as helping him get the right concessions from Ukraine. In any case, uh, Israeli field hospitals are saving lives in Ukraine. Israel has these field hospitals to address natural disasters and other emergencies that uh, come up around the world. And uh, these are sent to provide free medical care, uh, excellent medical care uh, in these situations. Well, at a field hospital in Ukraine, uh, Israel, an Israeli field hospital, they've delivered their first baby. So uh, this is a kind of a, a moment, a remarkable moment. And think about the blessings of new life uh, in the midst of the horrors of war and chaos. Uh, life goes on and we need to be thinking about the next step. So hopefully life will uh, improve for all of these people. In the meantime, uh, Israeli field hospitals are out there saving lives, trying to help people in these trying times. All right, so I'm on to arguments and debates about the Ukraine crisis. My next topic here. Uh, you're seeing a lot of debating out there about you know, Ukraine, and you'll see a lot of information passing around about things. Uh, some really interesting insanity <laughs> out there. Uh, I was debating recently, and uh, my friend Jake Jacobs, uh, whose podcast is, is really awesome. If you're looking for conservative commentary on the issues, uh, Jake Jacobs' show, uh, very easy to find, Jake Jacobs, not hard to find. Jake is a great guy, and he's really out there uh, talking about a lot of other political issues. He has a, a broader scope to his show and does more uh, conservative commentary. Uh, but, uh, you know, he and I were debating on a, on a thread on Facebook and uh, going back and forth with somebody. And, you know, it's just like, uh, how do you, you know, we, we had this private message conversation. It was like, basically, how do you stay sane? I mean, there's so much insanity out there. People are just going nuts. And uh, I told him, well, I listen to the Jake Jacobs show and I record my podcast and I just try to give everybody the best information I can. And uh, it, you know, it's, it's hard. Uh, there's, there's a lot of, uh, lot of misinformation out there. So the Russians are masters of propaganda. They have been since the Stalin era, and they continue to be today. And they will put out all kinds of misinformation. Usually they'll take a little kernel of truth and throw it out there and surround this thing. They need a little bit, a little, 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 teeny little corn of, of truth, and they'll bake it into a pie of lies. It's just full of lies and nonsense. So I'm going to go into some of those things right now real quick uh, to give you an idea of what I'm hearing out there and the kind of things that are being said. And then uh, that'll help inform, you know, better inform people and offer better perspective. Uh, at least, you know, when I, I debate with um, Serbian nationalists or uh, Eastern European rightists, uh, when I see them and, and argue, they're all kind of nutty anyway. But anyway, when I, when I go argue with them, uh, I can at least, you know, this is their perspective. They're, they're on Putin's side. I can understand that a little better, uh, why they are into all this propaganda. But why people on the American right are spreading this propaganda, I do not know. All right. So let's go through a couple of things. Um, biolabs. There are bioweapons labs in Ukraine. No, there aren't. There are no bioweapons labs in Ukraine. Do I have to repeat that one more time? There are no bioweapons labs in Ukraine. Ukraine has a CDC, just like the United States, Britain, France, Germany. Every country in the world has a center for disease control or something like it, where they conduct research on diseases. And obviously, deadly diseases. So would it be a good idea for Russia to go bomb these labs? No. Are they weapons labs? No. We are getting a lot of information about this, this Wuhan lab and all of this stuff going on there. And there's money coming from here and money coming from there. And it's one of those big things where I need a new conspiracy theory because all my conspiracy theories are coming true. Uh, we are finding out that at the very least, there's a lot of funny business and a lot of cause to be suspicious about that research. I'm not going into that. This has nothing to do with that. But the Russians see that and they say, hey, let's take a kernel of truth that there are labs in Ukraine that study diseases and let's bury it in a pie of lies, bake it into a pie, right? So what does the pie say? There are bioweapons labs in Ukraine. 
And that's a reason that Russia should invade Ukraine and mass murder the Ukrainian population. Okay. Uh, maybe I should change the accent on that because what I'm really here when I hear people say there are bioweapons labs, I hear, you know, comrade, there are bioweapons labs in Ukraine. That is why we are invading. Don't, uh, don't take this too seriously. It's, uh, you know, Ukraine is a serious threat to Russia. Right. Okay. Um, New World Order, George Soros. Uh, George Soros or Soros in the original Hungarian. Uh, you know, he spends a lot of money doing a lot of harm in politics. We all know that. Okay. He supports far left candidates. Uh, he supports a leftist agenda. He does this globally. He's got his fingers in lots of pies all around the world. Um, he's a much bigger problem here in the U.S. and in Western Democratic countries where he spends money getting district attorneys elected and uh, attorneys general at state level and secretaries of state. Uh, these are, you know, the people that corrupt the process. Okay. That's not a conspiracy theory. We have the campaign contribution records. We know that this is his agenda, okay? Uh, you know, he's not a member of the Elders of Zion or something like that. I've heard some all kinds of crazy theories about George Soros. He's a billionaire who, like Mark Zuckerberg, thinks that his money makes him a special kind of person who is morally superior to every other kind of person in the world, and therefore he can do whatever he wants and, you know, democracy, uh, what common people want, what working people want, who cares? None of that stuff matters because they are much better people than we are and they should be running things. This is a new, you know, it's a, it's a new story, right? An old story. It's the same old thing, right? There's nothing new under the sun as, as we, you know, biblical wisdom, okay? Same old thing. Uh, does he spend money and in, in Ukraine, perhaps? Is that a cause to invade Ukraine? Okay, Ukraine is corrupt. What government isn't corrupt? All right, there's lots of terrible corruption in Mexico. When do we invade? So we can go, we can, the United States can bomb Mexico. We can murder tens of thousands of Mexicans. We can blow their cities up, blow up hospitals, uh, shoot their people on the streets, drive tanks through Mexico City uh, because Mexico's government is corrupt. That's okay, right? That's totally moral. If, if you hear the chirping crickets here, I, I don't see the, the argument here, Okay. Ukraine is corrupt. Most of that corruption is from Russia. Companies like Burisma, where do you think they get their money from? Gazprom. Uh, you know, billionaire oligarchs in Russia, good friends of Vladimir Putin, people who grease the palms of the likes of Hunter Biden and Hillary Clinton so that they can have influence with the, the power brokers here in the U.S. Okay, that's where the corruption comes from. Is Ukraine perfect? No. Do Ukrainians have a right to live? Yes. So if I've heard anyone, anyone claim that a child has a right to be born and say that they are pro-life and then turns around and says it's okay for Putin to invade Ukraine because BS, 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 that person is amoral. That person has no moral leg to stand on. That person is a complete hypocrite. That person must stand before God in judgment and prostrate themselves and beg forgiveness and for mercy. Okay, that, that is just, that, that's so terrible. How you could justify mass murder. I mean, you know, you read the history books. You really do, you know, and it's sad because you see the Armenian genocide, the, uh, the murder of the Bosnians and, and ethnic cleansing in Rwanda, and obviously the Holocaust, the Holodormer, the mass murder of Ukrainians by Stalin. You look at the things that were said. You look at the things that people did, uh, the way they justified things, the way that they, they justified themselves. Uh, great Jewish philosopher Arendt point out the banality of evil. That the, most of these people are really stupid and they're just doing these things. They're not really contemplating the moral realities of what they're doing. Okay, but if you're the guard at a concentration camp, okay, you are morally responsible for what's happening there. If you're the administrator who does the paperwork for the concentration camp, you're morally responsible. If you're a, a, an NKVD officer, former, you know, now it's the KG or was the KGB, now it's the, the FSB, Federal Security Bureau. Anyway, the, uh, the KGB used to be called the NKVD before it was split up into several agencies. In any case, the NKVD, who are going around Ukraine confiscating food and farming implements, they know what's going to happen to the people that they're confiscating these things from, those people are going to starve to death. Millions did. 
Six or seven million Ukrainians died that way. Okay, the people who did this knew what was going to happen. They cannot be said that they did not, you know, they're not morally culpable for the results. Okay, they did what Stalin ordered them to do and people died. Okay, so if you're out there arguing in favor of Putin's invasion, you are literally justifying mass murder. You're you're like one of those people that, you know, in in the early 1930s and what have you, Charles Lindbergh and others. Oh, Hitler ain't so bad. He's misunderstood. People don't understand what his agenda is. This Hitler guy, I mean, do you really understand what he's about? Oh, yeah, you said he's going to kill the Jews, but he's not really going to do that. I mean, uh, evil says what it wants. I mean, these evil nut job dictators say what they want. Vladimir Putin says he wants to invade Ukraine and restore the Russian empire. He says he wants to invade Eastern Europe. So more on that in just a moment. So uh, the, these, these, you know, bioweapons labs and, and NWO and New World Order stuff. And I mean, come on, people, you, you can't believe this stuff. OK, you, you can't believe the Russian propaganda and be taken in by this stuff. It's infuriating to see that people are. I understand that people on the right right now don't trust the media, don't trust the government, and rightly so. I completely agree. I don't trust the media and I don't trust the government. I verify everything I say. Everything I tell you, I verified and re-verified. I don't come out here and just, you know, spout whatever because that's what I've heard, okay? Um, this, this stuff is nuts, okay? Don't, don't buy into these, these conspiracy theories that somehow uh, Putin is doing the right thing. No, okay? Now, the other argument I've heard out there is the one I, I, I feel should be had on every conflict. And it's frustrating because uh, people don't see the big picture. But let me just go with this one. So, you know, the, the question, uh, why is this our problem? Right. Uh, we're not the world's policemen. You know, would you send your children to die in Ukraine? Of course not. Right. Like I said, U.S. forces cannot engage in war, direct confrontation with Russian forces. It cannot happen. OK, that just can't happen. But we have to consider the larger implications here, right? Vladimir Putin just gave a speech in which he said he wants to restore the Russian Empire, in which he said Lenin and Stalin were too soft. They gave in to people's national aspirations. There shouldn't have been Soviet republics. Stalin was too soft. That's what Vladimir Putin said in his speech. Just... You know, those of you who know your history are right now are just, you know, I'm sure your jaws are agape. Your mouth is agape. Your jaw is hanging inches below your face. You know, as as Glenn Beck used to say, blood is squirting from your eyes, (laughs) right? I mean, this is just, wow, territory here, okay? Stalin was too soft. And he says he wants to restore this Russian empire. And he says he has aspirations for Eastern Europe. The Baltic states used to be part of the Soviet Union, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. Okay, Poland used to be under this, the thumb of Russia. That's what he wants. Okay, so if we don't fight the war today, if we don't help Ukraine today to stave off Russian invasion, he's going to destabilize Europe. Europe has been at peace for the last 80 years because of the United States. Right? Otherwise, the Soviet Union would have invaded, you know, or Hitler would have done his thing. All right. But they've lived in a period of unprecedented peace and prosperity under U.S. leadership. Eastern Europe suffered under Russian uh, occupation. That is true. However, when the Soviet Union collapsed, we got rid of the Soviet Union from those territories. They are now free and uh, they are taking care of themselves. And the U.S. is helping them develop and, and grow their economies and what have you. Okay. If... Putin gets Ukraine, Poland is next, all right? He will destabilize Poland. He will destabilize Europe. There are all kinds of radical groups, rightists, leftists. Putin's read Stalin's works. He knows. He's read his history books. He knows how to do this. He can find ways to back-channel money to neo-Nazi parties in in various Eastern European countries and get them out rabble-rousing and even to leftist militant groups, you know, pro-communist groups. And as they agitate and blow up buildings and, and you know, riot, demonstrate, he can point to them and look at all the chaos in Hungary. Oh my God, riots, 
riots in Budapest. Look at all the chaos. You know, I should just go in there and establish order, right? And that's where we'll be. And as soon as his troops cross the line, we are at war, okay? We cannot allow Russia to take Poland, Estonia, Romania, Hungary, any of these countries. Uh, they'll, they'll destabilize Europe. The United States is a European power, okay? So the question that I, I was asking, would I send my sons to die? I have six children, five sons and one girl. My family has a long history of serving in the military. Uh, we've been involved in every military conflict in U.S. history and, uh, you know, including the most recent wars. Uh, this, this is nothing new to my family, this idea of sacrifice. Okay, there are members of my family buried at Arlington and in various fields around the world where Americans have had to go to war for, to fight for liberty and freedom. If we don't stop Vladimir Putin in Ukraine, some of my sons are going to be buried in fields in Poland under marble stars of David. And some of your sons under marble crosses or whatever, okay, they're going to be fields in Poland with Americans buried or represented by these marble monuments if we don't stop Putin now. This is World War III. It really is, okay? World War III was really honestly fought between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, except that it could not be fought directly. So Stalin took over uh, China and then invaded Korea, South Korea, right? And we fought that war. He wanted to test our resolve. Thankfully, Baruch Hashem, <laughs> by the, with the help of God, Bezrat Hashem, as we say, with God's help, Stalin died and they were able to stop that war. Uh, Stalin was the only one keeping the war going. Uh, Kim Il-sung was begging Stalin to end the war. Mao was telling Stalin, look, I can't, I can't keep this up. Even Mao. I mean, Mao is possibly the most evil human being who has ever lived in terms of sheer oppression and mass murder. Okay? And even he wanted to stop the war. And Stalin kept it going. When Stalin died, they finally found an end to that war. Uh, the conflict went on through Vietnam and various other struggles, Angola, uh, other places around the world until the Soviet Union finally fell. But the reason there was no active war, right, was atomic weapons, right? We had the bomb. Eventually, Russia got the bomb. And because of that, we could not go into direct confrontation. That's why Stalin started the proxy wars. That's why the war was fought through these proxies. Now, in essence, this is an extension of that same World War III because it's still Russia as a power. It's just not as ideological. It's kind of the reverse of what happened in the 18th century. In the 18th century, Britain and France, along with other Habsburg states, started with the War of Spanish Succession in the early 18th century and various other conflicts uh, throughout that, that century. But there's this long, drawn-out geopolitical conflict between Britain and France over who's going to be the most powerful country in the world. And this kind of culminates in the Napoleonic Wars. It became ideological with the French Revolution and the French Republic and less ideological once Napoleon uh, became the obvious dictator, but still it's, it's problematic. In any case, um, the nature of it changed in 1789, but it continued to be this long struggle between Britain and France that Britain ultimately prevailed and, and became the most powerful country in the world for over a century, basically unchallenged until World War I and the United States started to uh, sap that role from uh, Britain leading up to the Second World War. Anyway, same kind of thing here. We have this geopolitical struggle between Russia and the United States. Now, it's no longer ideological because the Soviet Union has fallen, right? It's now more of your old-fashioned power politics struggle, geopolitical struggle between two powers, okay? The United States is vastly more powerful than Russia, okay? We are, we are a superpower beyond superpower. We are so much more powerful militarily and economically than Russia and China, it's not even funny, okay? Together, put them together and we're more powerful. But they are challenging us. And if we continue to back down, they will continue to challenge us and they will eventually supplant us, right? So this is a struggle we still have to fight. You want to see a real war, if you want to see real carnage and real horror in the world, then we should back down and let Russia and China have whatever they want. It's not going to be a fun world. We've had wonderful time of prosperity and liberal democracy. We're going to see a time of oppression, of oligarchs, of uh, powerful states dominating the world. That's not going to be fun. Okay? Anyway, 
This is World War III. And in the cyber world, it is already World War III. Russian and Chinese hackers are attacking Western uh, computer networks everywhere, you know, anonymously, but we know it's happening. If you've seen your internet slow, that's why. We're having a massive conflict uh, between global powers over the internet. So cyber warfare is in full swing. So that's what's going on here. Um, so why should the U.S. get involved? Why should we help Ukraine? We, yeah, we've got problems here. Yes, we have illegal immigration. Yes, we have other things, things we can deal with in our future elections. Okay, but if we surrender to Russia now in Ukraine, if we let Ukraine be occupied, uh, we, are, we are definitely starting the next war. It will definitely come to Poland. And people, well, I don't think Putin is going to do that. He said he would. A lot of people didn't think Hitler was going to try to kill the Jews. A lot of people didn't think Stalin really meant it. And then he started invading countries. He invaded Poland. He invaded Finland. He invaded Romania. He invaded Manchuria on Chukwo, which was controlled by Japan. He invaded Tanotuva, completely occupied. It's still Russian territory to this day. It's a little sort of Buddhist state on the border of China those who don't know. Uh, and, you know, he, he pushed the invasion of Korea. He, he would have taken over the whole world if he'd been given the opportunity to. Uh, you know, he and Hitler had the same goal with different ideological outcomes intended. Anyway, we have to fight this struggle. We have to maintain our stance against Russia or we all lose. And we, we have to show strength to drive Russia, especially, and also China, to the negotiating table to get a real arms limitation. We need a Washington Naval Treaty, you know, a real one, <laughs> between the three powers that uh, seriously de-escalates this nuclear conflict. Back in 2020, I dared to believe, because I could see it happening, that if Donald Trump was re-elected, we could, we could see the writing on the wall that China would be cowed economically because he was standing up to them in the trade deficit issue and forcing the Chinese to uh, take a step back in the South China Sea and in other areas where they've been aggressive. Uh, and Russia was cowed as well. We could imagine a moment, for a moment, a world without bad guys, right? A world where the Putins and the Chis were contained, where their power was limited, and where they couldn't cause much trouble where we could begin the process of negotiating uh, down nuclear weapons, where we could really get the world into a good place. Uh, the president withdrew, President Trump withdrew from the IRBM treaty, which was uh, a direct threat to Russia, uh, that we could start putting uh, nuclear missiles in, in theater. Again, this was called three theater strategic weapons. Uh, these are uh, weapons that you would put in Europe or in Asia that would be closer to potential enemy targets. Right. Anyway, the point is that and revamping our nuclear forces were part of a process of letting the Russians and the Chinese know, hey, we will spend whatever it takes to revamp our nuclear systems and uh, modernize our weapons. But if you guys come to the table, maybe we could negotiate these down and save us all a lot of money. OK. And reduce the tensions. But unfortunately, they will only negotiate with uh, a regime or an administration in a position of strength. And obviously, that is not the case today. And so I, I just have to express my disappointment that we were so close to a position. And, and Biden could have, Joe Biden could have uh, continued that, you know, tried to, to be in a position of strength. But after losing in Afghanistan and our virtual surrender to Iran with the Iran deal, that we're even willing to negotiate along these lines... The U.S. does not look to be in a position of strength. Okay, so I started talking about French presidential elections and uh, the French presidential politics uh, last year a little bit, and this Ukraine situation has kind of taken over the narrative this year. But I just want to give a brief update because the election is coming up here pretty quick. Uh, the uh, There was some exciting news early on. It looked like Valérie Pécresse was maybe, maybe, maybe going to be a serious competitor and the Republicans could maybe be a threat to the, uh, the government, uh, to uh, Emmanuel Macron's uh, presidency, but not so much. Current polls, uh, especially with the crisis in Ukraine and what have you, uh, have really, the situation's really made Macron look good in French politics. They like to internationalize their campaigns, French presidential candidates, and show that they're the, uh, the big guy on the international scene. And that's, that's only helped him. But also there's been a lot of infighting on the French right, as I noted. So 
Uh, here's where the polls stand now. Macron is leading at 28%. Uh, Marine Le Pen is at 20%. Mélenchon is at 15%. He represents kind of the new left. I want to call it like left communist because this is France we're talking about, but uh, sort of a populist left. Uh, Eric Zamour, the uh, uh, ethnically Jewish <laughs> rightist candidate, very right-wing anti-immigration candidate, he's down at 10%, and uh, Valik Prakas is at 9 or 10%, depending on which poll you look at, in fifth place. So, so much for Prakas, it's not looking good for her. Uh, I didn't talk much about Mélenchon, he's not really a relevant figure, he's kind of risen as the main figure on the left, He's, he's charismatic and he has this sort of populist left thing that he does. Um, but it, it, at this point, you look at these polls, uh, the runoff is going to be between Macron and Le Pen. And we've already seen that's probably going to end 60-40 for uh, Macron. So most likely the headline, that the thing I told you right at the beginning, probably Emmanuel Macron gets reelected. That's probably what's going to happen. So... Um, that I, you know, I, I wish there was more of a news story there because I'd like to talk about it. Just like uh, we had some really exciting coalition negotiations in Germany as the traffic light coalition came together that I, I told you about in great detail so that uh, we have a great understanding of German politics. So that's where French politics sits right now. Nothing too exciting going on there. With that, as always, I say goodbye. Lachitrot. <laughs>